And ultimately, it was really expensive to write back then, so you kind of wanted to cut down in space. Like, there used to be no spaces between words when they started writing. Could you imagine what that would be like? And with Hebrew, there was no spaces and there was no vowels, which is crazy. I don't know how you can read like that. But what they used to do is they used to put that little term at the end, and because it was expensive, they began to make their own symbol. And what they did is they took the I and they put it above the, above the O, and then ultimately the O got smaller and smaller, and that's where we got this exclamation mark from. Now, it was introduced into English printing in the 15th century, and it was kind of like a sign of admiration or exclamation. I like uh, the term wonderment. It really brings out what is occurring when we say like admiration, exclamation. It's this sense of just wonder, to be in awe. And before the 1970s, has anyone ever used a typewriter before the 1970s? I actually remember doing this when I had to use a typewriter when I was itsy, itsy, itsy bitty and, and we didn't have a computer. But when you used to want to write an exclamation mark on a typewriter, you guys remember what you had to do? Does someone actually remember? You had to, you had to, you had to put a, uh, like a period and then hit backspace and then put like an apostrophe to get the exclamation mark. And in the 1950s, uh, like uh, the, sector, the sectorial di dictation um, you know, committee or whatever they were, they gave it like a nickname. They called it the bang. It's another cool word to think about exclamation mark. They called it the bang. And some people think that they got that from comic books. Like when they would fire a gun in the 1950s comic books, sometimes they would just put an exclamation mark to give you that you know, bang. And even if you look at comics today and you see the word bang, you always see these big, fat exclamation marks. And just some other interesting ways that people have described the exclamation mark, they've described it as, uh, modern printers describe it as the screamer, the gasper, the slammer, and the startler. So you have all these ideas here that there's really three usages of the exclamation mark. And my wife, every time I give a sermon, my wife always like tells me, like, hey, don't give them those you know, boring words. Like, they don't care about this word. We're actually going to touch on these at the very end. You don't have to memorize them. You're not going to get quizzed afterwards. But these are three usages of the exclamation mark. If I said boo, and then I said boo with an exclamation mark, there's a difference, right? Boo versus boo. And that's the usage of exclamation. It's like emphasis. Then you have the imperative, a grammar word. Imperative is basically where you tell someone to do something, and it's whenever you have a sentence that doesn't have a subject. So if I say, stop it right now, and I'm talking to Charlotte, I could say, Charlotte, stop that right now. But when I say, stop it, that's the imperative. I'm not making a suggestion here. I'm telling her to do something. And there's consequences just by the tone of my voice. And finally, there's a usage for astonishment. There were, there were footprints of a giant duck. Versus, there were footprints of a giant duck. You know? What is going on? And we're going to kind of see all three of these usages in our text today. So, Turning to our text, we're going to look at the cross-shaped exclamation mark in all of history. And it occurs in these four events. Event number one, crucifixion. Mark chapter 15, verse 21 to 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. 
but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one in his right and one in his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, and he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So there's Jesus crucified on the cross. And Mark has this brevity all throughout his gospel. We've seen it. I mean, we kind of get that image with the exclamation mark, that imperative, you know, that force. Mark wastes no time getting to events. You read the other gospels, you get these long out descriptions of the crucifixion, but Mark just gets us there. And what we learn in here is the only exclamation marks that we find are from who? You guys remember what color we used to depict these people? Yeah, wow, that is so impressive. You guys even remember that. Orange. Orange, those are like the naysayers, the critics, you know, the chief priests and the council, the ones that were critiquing the Christ and were holding up and were testing him. And they ultimately put him on trial. Here they are, Jesus is there crucified, and he's crucified next to who? bunch of bandits, a bunch of thieves. And even the thieves are mocking Jesus. All the voices that we hear up until Jesus' actual death have been in critique of him. And we find him here crucified. And now what I'm going to do for this sermon, uh, and it's intentional, is I'm going to go to one of these passages here in, in, in Mark, and then I want to kind of parallel with um, something from the Old Testament. Because my experience as a Christian and reading scripture has been, you know, when I find these, when I find this parallel, it's a sense of awe and wonder. And that's really what prophecy uh, does for me is I just get bewildered and in awe of how, you know, this has come about over hundreds and hundreds of years. So if you've never read Isaiah 53, you know, you're going to have to go there and study it tonight, but we're going to go through some pieces today. So you want to read with me Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 to 6. So thinking of that passage with Jesus crucified, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before. And it starts like this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a, shrew, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, what has been the key question in the Gospel of Mark? There's really two themes that I said over and over and over again. And the first key question is that he is the who? He is the Son of God. The 
Son of Man, He's the Messiah. And here we see the critiquers, right, the critics, mocking him by calling him you know, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. But then we have places like this in Isaiah, which is telling us why this Messiah is coming. Right? They're thinking political rulers. We've seen that with the disciples. But here we see in Isaiah this individual is going to become, and he's not going to be overly beautiful. You know, he, but he's going to come to carry the iniquity of everyone. And then you even have real interesting terms like, uh, to be pierced for our transgressions, they really didn't have a kind of like a, pier, a piercing uh, method of, uh, of execution or torment in that epoch. Um, the only one that they had was, you know, for slaves, they would put rings in their noses. But you have this image of piercing, which ultimately makes me, when I read the passage, think of um, Christ being pierced upon the cross. So we have this parallel, but the parallel goes even deeper. And then we look at the next episode, his death. Jesus has come and he predicted that he was going to be persecuted by men. He told us in three different occasions that he was going to be killed. And now we get to his actual death. The fulfillment of those three prophetic occurrences. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. Sorry, I mean Mark chapter 14, verses 52. Thirty-three to forty-one. Yeah, thirty-three to forty-one. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani," which means, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, "Behold, he is calling Elijah." And some of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, "Wait." Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, this man, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Actually, a funny thing about the exclamation mark. Who do you think uses the exclamation mark more, men or women? Women. <laughs> I just had to, like, I was like, Leonard, I hope you remember that. And I knew this passage was going to pull it out. Why? Because women were the only ones that were there, all the disciples. So. But getting more serious. Look at the exclamation mark you get here. I mean, this is the fundamental answer to what we've been trying to get out through the whole gospel that the disciples didn't get. And who gets it here? No, no. Who, who gets this exclamation mark? Who's saying this? Who says this right here? This is the exclamation mark we got on our passage. Truly, this man was the son of God. The centurion. And the centurion's a what? He's a soldier. He's a Roman soldier. He's a Gentile. So, I mean, you have here the king of you know, the Jews, and you get a centurion, a Gentile, not the disciples, but this Gentile who goes and makes this prophetic announcement of Jesus as the son of God. And then you have the women there who are the ones that are still with him. Right? 
And you have a parallel here with his death. And it comes from Psalm 22. We're not going to read all verse 1 through 31. But look how, look how Psalm 22 starts. It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you've ever read that passage, this usually happens to like everyone. It happened to me. Like when, I, when the first time I read this passage and I see Jesus and Jesus is there saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're probably saying like, whoa, what do you mean the Father has forsaken the Son? What does that even mean? That's rich. Now, Jesus is obviously here communicating his you know, despair. He's taking on the iniquity of the world, taking on the sins of all mankind, born and unborn. He's crying out to God as sin is being placed upon him, and he's dying for our sin on the cross. And this is what he chooses to say. And, of course, back then, you didn't have chapters. You know, like, we're lucky. We get to go look up, like, when I say Mark chapter 15, verse 31, even though we had that little episode right now, I mean, back then, they didn't have no verses or chapters. They just had books. And one of the only ways you'd be able to reference these places is to say things that were really memorable. And this is what Jesus says, which immediately wants to draw us to this passage. And this is what we find. This is Psalm 22, starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Whom you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. And to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Doesn't that sound familiar? Wasn't that almost like exactly what we were reading? Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. He continues. This is going down a little bit to verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, and you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So here's from another passage. And what do we have? A description there of a crucifixion, a description of the piercing of the hands and the feet. I mean, even to the point where the division of his garments by the casting of lots is mentioned there in the psalm which Jesus had experienced. And then it closes, verses 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise them. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him, and the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosper of the earth 
eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So Psalm 22, what do you have going on? You have a prophecy here of this piercing right, of the hands and the feet. And it ultimately ends with God restoring his kingship to the to the, to the proclamation of this congregation of the people. Even those who are unborn will one day come and bow the knee before the throne and acknowledge Jesus as Christ, or this individual in the psalm. So we get the crucifixion and that parallel with Mark and Isaiah. We get Jesus' death and that parallel with Mark and the psalm. Now we get Jesus' healing in Mark chapter 15, verse 42 to 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So you have this individual who's a prominent member of the council. He's a rich guy. And in, uh, in their custom back then, he had to bury the corpse within 24 hours. And you can make an exception to Passover for this activity. So important it was for them to have this body buried in 24 hours. And that incident there of the rich man and the tomb, even that is paralleled over there in Isaiah, in the next part, Isaiah 53, verse 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So again, another detailed prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his burial, where it even goes to the point of mentioning that he was going to be buried in the tomb of this rich man, you know, and that his death here would occur alongside these vagabonds. So we have the piercing of the hands and the feet we have the discussion of the people reviling him like we saw the color orange. And now here we even have a description of how his demeanor was going to be. And how was Jesus at his trial before the council? Remember one of the things that they mentioned about him? That he had this silence to the charge. And his one response was to affirm who he was, the I am. And then we get to our final episode, the resurrection. Mark 16, verse 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. 
He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then this is how the last passage in the sermon goes. This is at the very end there of Isaiah 53, uh, verse 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of God to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So what does all this mean? Why would I just go and spend the bulk of the sermon just reading passages of Scripture? I mean, one of the reasons is I wanted to leave anything with you guys. I'll actually get to this at the very very end. It's just this reverence for this narrative in Scripture. And there's something to me that's just awe-inspiring of going and reading the Old Testament and seeing these books that were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the event, and then reading that degree of detail, you know, from the type of punishment to an explanation of the events and the occurrences to even his burial. I mean, those descriptive terms to me are just remarkable. And when I read something like that, and having been a religious studies major, I mean, it's, it's hard to find something with the caliber and credibility of, um, of the New Testament, Old Testament docu- documents in antiquity. I mean, they're far more well-preserved than anything by Socrates or Aristotle or any of the Greek classics. And then you go and you read these events separated, separated by different authors, different time periods. Even there between the Psalms and the book of Isaiah, you have totally different contexts. But you read this same narrative. And every time I've preached on Genesis 1 to 3, which I love to do, I always find something new. You see the start of that narrative. You see that start of the narrative where after they're cast out from the garden, God promises Eve that by her seed will come the one who will, what, crush the head of the serpent. And even in the passages that we read, we read that same image. It's one of the main images in the Old Testament, which is, I said, the shrut, that it's, it's like the root. I mentioned in one of the passages, the root of David. Like there's going to come this descendant, starting from Eve, that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And then here we read about Jesus. We read about him there in this Old Testament passages, that he's going to come and he's going to carry these iniquities, that he's going to die for humanity. And that he's going to ultimately what? Remain there? No. The end of both of those passages have this language there of like celebration, which is interesting. You know, the Old Testament is not the easiest book to read. But when you go over that, you begin to see like why is there this sense of joy? Like you can see it when it mentioned like worship from the congregation. Why is there this sense of worship and joy from this ghastly description of this man who's pierced? And people despise him. But because of that and this carrying of iniquities, what does that even mean? Because of this carrying of sin, man was going to have true joy. 
And that's our word, right? The exclamation mark, joy. I mean, that's what this entire book is about, which is finding this joy. Not just mere happiness or, you know, satisfaction and your job. No, no, no. Jesus is coming to carry your sins and provide you with joy. So the question from our text for what we saw in verse 41 of chapter 4 is this is the episode of the disciples and one of the miracles of nature where they were so in awe of what Jesus had done that they looked to each other and they asked, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, they were petrified. They were scared because they just watched how Jesus had mastery over nature, something that in the Old Testament is only attributed to God. And we got our answer in the first verse, which tells us what the book is about, that Jesus is the Son of God. And here we find the centurion, the Gentile, telling us, proclaiming before these experts of the law, that truly this was the Son of Man. So, bringing all of our sermon to you to a close, we can go back to this image of the mark. Mark. The sermon series is called Mark. Helps us think of the gospel of Mark. We use exclamation mark and punctuation mark and question mark to try to summarize what we were getting at and what the gospel is trying to tell us. But ultimately, what we see in that exclamation mark and this whole idea of mark is that Jesus was the pierced one. He was the punctured mark. We use punctuation marks, but Jesus is this one who was punctured. He had the punctured mark literally engraved above the wrist. And we saw that he was remarkable because he did these miracles, controlling nature and healing people. And what Mark wants you to do by the time you get to the end of this book is he wants you to respond alongside that centurion. You know, he wants you to show this exclamation of, of joy and of, of acknowledgement of who Jesus is you know, the reason why I like to close in the, in the image of an exclamation mark is it's almost as if to say that of all of human history, this is where the exclamation mark of humanity's existed and God's creation occurred. I mean, you know, God here saved humanity, his crowned creation, upon this cross-shaped exclamation mark. You know, it just interjects and it exclaims to the world that God is king and that he was going to come to save his people to save us from our iniquities. And in addition to that major theme of Jesus being the Son of God and coming to die for our sins, one of the other questions we looked at was, well, what's your response? That's been this whole discussion of discipleship. We asked ourselves literally with questions when we said, who am I? Remember that question? And whose am I? These are all different ways for us to ask ourselves, you know, am I a follower of Christ or not? Have I trusted in Jesus to carry my iniquities, or am I trusting in myself to do it, to be my own little God? And for those who have said that they have trusted in him and consider themselves disciples, Mark has had a whole lot to say on what that looks like. And this is that second usage of the exclamation mark. The first usage, the first usage is exclamation itself, that expression of joy, right, of wonderment. And the second usage of an exclamation mark is astonishment. And this has been my Christian experience. If I were to summarize what it's been like to be a Christian for the 10 years that I've been a Christian, I would summarize it as just being in awe, consistent growth of wonder. I mean, being astonished 
Like the more I learn how big God is, how infinitely huge God is, and how holy and loving God is, and then I look at myself as a sinner. Like 10 years ago, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday. I can't say all the things, but I was bad, man. I was bad. I mean, you know, drugs, yeah, you know, like foreign philosophies and other religions, I dabbled in that. I practiced Wiccan when I was in, uh, in middle school. I had spell books I hid from my parents under the bed. But I really resonate with Augustine because Augustine has this story in his confessions where he writes about how he was just, you know, he's just writing like, why when boys get together, they just do such stupid things. And he's just like, he's more, and it's amazing, like if you've never read Augustine's Confessions, it's a masterpiece in literature because you can read it today and you're like, whoa, like this is about like today, like someone from today could have written this. And people have been doing that for hundreds of years, whether it was in the medieval era or like our contemporaries, like they'll read Augustine's Confession and be like, man, this sounds like he's talking about me and my experience with sin. But in specific, he writes this story where him and his friends go and they steal like peaches or some fruit, and they're not, even, they're not even hungry. But they just steal it, just to steal. And I remember when I was in high school, man, we did stupid stuff for no reason. And I would feel bad about some of these things. Like I knew, because Romans 1 tells us that God writes his law in our hearts, and I knew that they were wrong, but I did them anyways. You know, smashing mailboxes, paintballing people's homes. But one that always, always stuck with me is, we would drive around and do really stupid things, and once we drove next to this homeless man, and we, we all had shaving cream cans, gel shaving cream cans, the ones that shoot out. And we covered this poor, you know, um, homeless man in shaving cream and told him, now you have a bath. And then we drove off, and we laughed, you know. And that's just the type of stupid things we did. And I always felt like there was something wrong about that, but I had no framework. And then now I look, and I'm just like, wow. To go from that and all the other unspeakable things that are between God and I and to standing at a pulpit and proclaiming the word of God, like that is my sense of wonder, an exclamation mark that I've experienced in my life. I mean, Jesus dying on the cross was the exclamation mark for all of the history, and I got to experience it at a point in my life where I got to see a dramatic change. To be at the point where I was in seminary studying, I thought I was going to be an otorhinolaryngologist, an ENT, ears, nose, and throat specialist. I thought I was going to be taking out tonsils. And now I'm performing another type of surgery, right, which is proclaiming the word of God. And, uh, you know, Lord willing, by his power of the spirit, saving lives. But I've seen that exclamation mark, and reading scripture has just been this experience of being in awe. Because the more I understand God's love and mercy, and the more I understand how depraved and sick I am, then the more beautiful the crucifixion of all things could look like. I mean, a ghastly, ugly, you know, uh, blood-stained cross could in my mind be beautiful because it was the bridge in which I would go back into relationship with God. And I would learn what it would be to be human to really be a human being, by being saved by the Son of God, the Son of Man. By him becoming a human, I was able to achieve true humanity because I was able to be restored with my Father in heaven and have this enduring relationship with him. So my experience as a Christian has just been one of astonishment. And that's why I want you guys to read your Bible. I know that sounds so 
silly and so elementary. But I'm still at the point where I read my Bible, and I'm telling you, every time I go to Genesis 1 to 3, if you ever looked at like my personal Bible, Genesis 1 to 3, it just has colors and notes and images that I'm drawing because I learn things that are new. And even in those passages, I've shared those passages a hundred times with the youth because I want them to get this. This is really, really cool. This is amazing. Or one of my favorite words, this is awesome. Awe-inspiring. I'm in shock of this. That something like this could have been planned and, and that God himself would come and save us. Wow, what a twist to the story. The God who righteously would judge us and condemn us comes to save us without sacrificing his justice. But that he will take that penalty upon himself. So with astonishment, the question there becomes, is what is your response to him? Remember how um, you know, they define exclamation mark, an exclamation, a sense of wonderment, that eos, that joy. I mean, is that, is that Jesus, is that son of God, is he your source of astonishment or is he your source of joy? You know, do you look to Jesus and say, like, huzzah? Or do you look to Jesus and say, hooray? Or you could even look to Jesus and say, hua. I mean, like, is that the one you're taking orders from and the one that you find satisfaction in? Or are you looking for it somewhere else? Well, then your exclamation mark is misplaced, and you probably really have a problem. Now, as for your mark, you have here, Mark tells us, the book is about the Son of God. This is what I want to explain to you. And two, I want you to understand what it's like to be a disciple. I want you to be astonished and in love with the Son of God. But then we also get this final question. Remember, one of the other ways you can use an exclamation mark is how? The imperative. And what's an imperative? Stop it. Go over there. Do it. It's like a command. And we get this imperative at the end of Matthew, which is to what? Yeah, to go and make disciples. What's the final question of the what will you do with your astonishment? Well, I mean, it's like anything that's really good. Bill Sears is pretty good at this. Like if something's good, what do you guys like to do? You like to share it. Facebook it. I mean, man, there's a there's literally a button there that tells you what to do. Share it. So so you know, people are like, man, evangelism is so hard, stuff like that. I mean, all it is is it's just sharing what's really good. Because I love sharing good things with people. Well, I like to cook Cuba food. So I love to share good things with people. So what you do at the exclamation mark, we're given an imperative by Jesus at the end of his ministry, which is to go out into the world to baptize, to make disciples in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Discipling them. And then he tells us, look, and you've got to do all that stuff, but you're not going to do it by yourself. I'm going to be with you. And he gives us the Spirit. So we have here this exclamation mark on all of history. And it's my hope that with this transition, because you, you, know, you don't really leave the church. If you feel like you can like, exit the church, you leave the church, you're probably one of the believers to begin with. That's why we practice church discipline, is to recognize who do we think was an actual legitimate believer. We baptize them to say, we recognize that you're a believer, baptizing you in this body. And then we conduct discipline because we know that someone who's a believer has the spirit and they'll recognize when they're in the wrong. Right? So you don't leave the church. We kind of like transition or transfer. And that's what Kitty and I are doing. We're going to be transitioning to this church. 
We're going to tr- literally transfer our membership. Like that Bible study told us, we're going to be your family now. Because you know, my concern was I'm leaving my Filipino family. And their response is, well, we're going to bring you in as our family. So if I had to just leave three marks on the church, and this is the close of the sermon. If I had to just leave three marks, if I got to pick what mark did I want to leave, because mind you, you know, when you ask yourself, like, what's your response to the exclamation mark, it's really going to affect how you conduct your whole life, right? Because you're going to ask yourself the question, what mark am I going to leave on people? What mark am I going to leave with my friends? What mark am I going to leave with my family? What mark am I going to leave on my kids? What mark am I going to leave on my coworkers? If I got to pick the luxury, the three marks that would be left from the five years that I've spent here, which is half of my life as a Christian, and my entire time in ministry, if I got to pick, these would be the three marks. The first mark that I would want to leave upon you guys is a marked appreciation of Scripture. I've said that over and over and over again. I could have conducted like a talk you know, and had all these different illustrations, but I said, you know what? I just want to read the word to them. I just want to read the remaining of the text, and I want to read to them some of my favorite passages in Psalm, Psalms and and in Isaiah, because I just want that to be so impressed upon you. Because in the end of the day, you know, when we transition, we're going to be forgotten. At some point, it happens. I mean, either this whole generation is going to pass, and no one's going to remember Leonard, or two generations down the line, no one's going to remember. But what you will remember is the stuff that you learn in Scripture. It's one of the reasons you get images. It's why Jesus taught in parables. You're going to remember things. My grand hope is that every time you see a punctuation mark, Every time you see a punctuation mark, you will stop and tell yourself, oh, man, I remember Leonard preached a sermon on punctuation marks, and it was about the book of Mark, and it was about Jesus is the Son of God, and what does it mean to be a disciple? Oh, yeah, and then all of this, right, I'm supposed to leave my mark on people by sharing them, sharing with them my joy. So that would be the first thing I would want to leave with you guys, an appreciation of God-breathed, authoritative, infallible, inerrant word. The second thing I would like to leave uh, as a mark upon you, on you guys, is structure. I mean, the Lord has called me in this area for some reason. Like I was that chief justice of my university, and I wasn't even like a law student. But they made a religious political science student who all of the Greeks hated because I was the only non-Greek in student government leadership. They made me this chief justice guy, and I had the job of creating the bylaws and the constitution for my university, and it was super corrupt. Super corrupt. The Greeks were just giving themselves money. And I got to go in there like, I don't have any concerns about Greek funding. Let's do separation of powers and stuff like that. And I had no idea why the Lord did, you know, called me to that. You know, and it was a great time, high drama, exactly what you want from college. I mean, you know, like, have any of you guys ever watched a hearing on TV for, like, a politician? I'm, I'm impressed because, I, you know, like, who wants to watch that? It's super boring. Well, my hearing was awesome. I got to go in there, and everybody just did not want me to get the position because they knew that what was going to happen. And I got fired, you know, from all these different directions, and it was like six hours long until like 2 a.m. with like 40 of my peers. But the Lord called me to this task for some reason, and I learned all about structure and the importance of bylaws and constitutions, and then what happens? The Lord calls me, you know, to... GBCF, and I was not planning on going into pastoral ministry. I was actually planning on going to be a chaplain in the military, but I couldn't because of the stupid things I did in my past. So I was up here in North Carolina like, I thought I was going to be a chaplain in the military. And God was like, nope. And then 
Kitty was going to go teach little kids, little Filipino kids, and I was going to feed the horse. And you guys know the story. Kitty got a job, and she said, I'll feed the horse. You go teach the Filipino kids. And I was like, sure, I'd love to. And then I went on a retreat, and I taught kids. And I left, and I was like, oh, my gosh. No, it wasn't the food. The food settled. But I was like, I was like, oh, my gosh. I got to teach. Like, I, it's like in me. I got to teach. I just, I just got this weird passion. I guess this is what they refer to, you know, as uh, like a calling, you know, the calling, the passion to preach. And I can't explain it. It was like a fire in my belly. And I was like, I got to teach. And then next thing I knew, I was here and I was teaching the youth. And then while I was here teaching the youth, I was like, oh, man, there's all these problems with structure. And then I was going to class, and in class I was learning about that one of the main things uh, from Baptist history is that they had this tendency to write these covenants and to create, and they were all about local government, church autonomy, that the church would govern itself. Not that they had pastors that would tell them what to do, or they had a bishop who would tell them what to do, or a pope who would tell them what to do, but that the church as priests, because we're all priests, would come together, and then you know, they would govern themselves by the power of the Spirit. And I was like, oh, man. Why isn't GBTF doing this, right? They're, they have all these baptisteries. <laughs> and then we were able to go and create that document. So at least in this regard to this mark, I know that there's already a mark. And, you know, by God's grace, it was this bylaws and this constitution that we got to do. And by the way, whenever I tell those stories to my classmates, my fellow PhD classmates, oh, I'm, like, I'm like the envy of the classes. They're like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, you have a church. That has had pastors that weren't paid full-time salary, and the church has an actual like number of people that go to their business meetings, and you don't have to tell them to go. And they actually spent a year doing their own bylaws and constitution. And they're like, and I'm like, yeah, man, isn't that amazing? Praise God! And they're like, I can't believe it. Like, they go and they try to like change the seating arrangement, and almost get kicked out of the church. And then I get there, and I get here, I'm like, oh man, this church could really use this, and the church did it. And it wasn't easy, but by God's grace, the church did it. And now, as I'm leaving, I get to see a church that's taking care of itself, right? That's governing itself. The church has deacons. There's not all this um, weight placed on just one figure, the pastor, to take care of everyone's problems, but it's being desperate. But before you guys get too, you know, like prideful, like, oh, yeah, GGTF is the stuff, um, you know, like any church, it's filled with, you know, sinners, some of whom may have been saved by Christ, others who may not have. That's why you practice church membership, to bring people into this fold. But even then, we're still here in the now waiting for Jesus' return, and we're not perfect. So if I had to leave one mark to help you guys with that problem, because that problem's always going to rear its head. You know, the stupid arguments, the things that people get mad about, like, like, if you had nothing better to do with your time as a church than to get mad at, like, the stupid, silly things, I have one more mark that I was going to leave with you guys. And um, this may be in order of importance, except number two and number three are kind of, like, tied, but I just saw, you know, an appreciation of structure. All structure is, is you know, uh, reinforcing scripture and service. It's, all structure does is tell you this is what we believe and this is what we should be doing. So in terms of the doing... This is the final mark that I want to leave on you guys, and that's this mark for, for service, you know, service. Because Jesus came to what? 
I mean, we didn't come to be served. We came to serve, to die for us, to carry our iniquities. Wow. Wonderment. And when people see that, when they see that exclamation mark, whether it's in your lives or by proclaiming it with, with words, I mean, it's something about it that just causes people to wonder. And there's something about seeing people who love other people more than themselves that catches on like a fire. So because I'm not going to be present anymore, I mean, not in a permanent fashion. I'll come and I'll visit every now and then. I would really like it if you guys could help us move because I want to try to get the other uh, small group that we're going into there, and that would be a really cool little transition. But because I'm not going to be permanently present here anymore as a member, I was like, well, let me give them a present. Let me give them a present since I'm not going to be present to remind them of my presence. (laughs) That worked, right? So it's because, you know, the thing I really want to be present is is admiration of Scripture. I know that I'm going to be forgotten, but I I got a present here. Okay, don't say it out loud, but you can take a guess right now. Don't say it out loud. I got a present here for the church. Now, you could, you could take it. You could put it wherever you want. Don't put it on an altar. Do not. I mean, remember, today's uh, Reformation Sunday. I don't want to come back. Like, you know, a couple of years from now, like 50 years from now, and I'm seeing, like, petals and candles burning before this thing on an altar. I would be like, I failed. I failed miserably. You know, there's a reason why Luther did the 95 Thesis on um, this, you know, around this time period, around All Saints Day. So this is my present of my presence, and this is to remind you guys to leave a mark of service so that every time you see this, if it's like wedged in a closet or somewhere, you could be reminded of the Gospel of Mark and the Mark series and, you know, being marked and the punctured one and the remarkable one and if you're leaving your mark on other people. And some of you may have guessed it right, but it's this guy. I'm going to leave this guy for you, right? Now, I, I actually need it, you know? My car, I, I actually, I'm, feeling, I'm starting to feel really bad because now that I have two babies, I guess my, uh, my, my demeanor in terms of dressing is changing, and my coworkers keep giving me clothes that are non, like, like, iron, like wrinkle-proof clothes. And like I'm noticing my shoes are out of date, but I'm going to give you guys this uh, shoe shine kit. So if you weren't here in the sermon series where we preached about what discipleship looks like, you know, and when, we, when I summarized what the Bible is about, is a great commandment, you know, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is, you know, when Jesus is summarizing the commandments, it's about acknowledging who God is first. And because of that, it's not, it's not in the other order, but because you acknowledge who God is, right, that sense of wonder, that sense of, 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 of exclamation pours out through you by the power of the Spirit into love, and in specific into love of your neighbor. So inside... Oh, you got some broken shoe shine. Most of these things probably don't work because they dried out. But I wrote, I wrote one verse in here, and I'll read this first, and then I'll close this in prayer. This is from Mark chapter 10, verse 43 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 43 to 45. And this is to lead this mark here of an appreciation of service. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then I wrote a little exclamation mark and, you know, 
the other side. And Jean, close your head, uh, close your eyes. I knew I was going to say it before. You know, uh, I managed the entire time preaching, preaching sermons to not say it. And of course, as I'm about to close, I'll say, can you please close? Actually, you know what? You can now close your mind. I've preached long enough. And uh, bow your eyes. Father, thank you, Lord, um, that you are just such a wonderful God. I mean, wow. I mean, huzzah, hooray, Father. Oy, oy, Father. Goodness, you're so good to us you know, to be able to uh, bring people together from all walks of life, uh, to bring the poor and the broken, to bring uh, the raped, to bring the abused, to bring the molested, to bring the hurting, Father, to bring the callous. Father, to bring them together and to save them and to bring them joy. Oh, Lord, I pray, Father, that uh, you may leave your mark upon these people and that as they go out into the world, they will be asking themselves, wow, there's such wonder of God that I want to share it with people with my lips and with my hands. I pray, Father, that it may be a people of proclamation and a congregation of praise, that they may love each other by the power of your spirit, that they may love their neighbors as they love themselves. In your name, Father, we pray, and we give you thanks for your word. Amen.